Hello, and welcome back to Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I try to talk about what I see as the most important current issues in international finance and economics, while providing my own U.S. political and policy angle on these different issues, when they are relevant. Today, I want to talk about the busy spring meetings week of the World Bank and the IMF, that's the International Monetary Fund, which took place last week in Washington. These meetings bring together public officials, the private sector, and other stakeholders to discuss the most important issues on international finance and economics. We listened to a lot of discussions, and here at the Institute of International Finance, we held a lot of thought-provoking discussions on many of the key topics, whether they were the risks that are in the financial system, central bank digital currencies, sustainable finance, and the global debt situation. But this week, I'm excited to welcome Jay Collins. He is the Vice Chairman of Banking, Capital Markets, and Advisory at Citigroup. Jay has over 30 years of experience in the intersection of international finance and global policy, including being a leading advisor to governments on sustainability and climate finance, privatizations, debt workouts, and many other complex financial issues. I'm very glad that Jay was able to join us this week. Well, thanks again for joining us, Jay. We are sitting down at the end of the 2023 spring meetings of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank Group. There have been obviously lots of interesting conversations this week uh, taking place among officials in the private sector, nonprofits, et cetera. If I had to classify it, there's been a little bit of a kind of a little dark on thinking about the global economic outlook. The IMF downgraded some of its forecasting. And also, some of that was probably driven by some of the volatility that we have seen in markets, probably most significantly through some of the banking problems at Silicon Valley Bank here in the United States and Credit Suisse over in Switzerland. But maybe instead of me trying to explain it, Jay, what were your main takeaways from this week of discussion, both from a kind of financial stability, financial volatility standpoint, and from an economic standpoint? So let me just say that I think that at, at the IMF World Bank meetings, the number of officials that come at you at, with different questions and different ideas are, are many. And of course, there are the questions at the emerging markets. Ministers of finance and governors will, will ask you that, of course, the developed economies I just met with a number of Europeans who are focused on the IRA and the $479 billion worth of incentives, primarily tax incentives, that will enable an extraordinary mobilization of trillions of dollars of investment capital in green in the United States, and whether that's protectionist or not. So I would say that you know the Europeans still questions on on the IRA that started at Davos and, and continue now. I definitely um, have heard a lot of questions again from the European on the security leak and the information and the degree to which people believe that that will change the, the war in, in, in Ukraine. But interestingly, for the market practitioners, the war has not really been on the table anywhere near as much as, as it certainly has been in recent times. I think the bank crisis in the United States, as you rightfully said, Clay, has taken over. And, and I'd put that in the context very much of a volatile market and also uh, disconnects in the market that connect back to what's happening in, 
in the banking industry in the United States. So first, I'd say debt and equity are disconnected. One of them is wrong. In fact, I'd say either the the Fed dots or the market are wrong, and, and maybe that's somewhere in between. And if you think about it in terms of a market that is predicting that the Fed will cut rates this summer and that will cut rates within the next year by to the tune of, say, 125 basis points, and a Fed and dots that are saying that they will not only stay high, move 25 to 50 basis points further north, but then hold there for longer, uh, that's a pretty major disconnect. And in fact, I was talking with our economists last night of how rarely we've seen that within the next four to five months, we will have to have enough data if the market's right to have the Fed reverse itself to to cutting rates if the market's right. So what does that have to do with the banking crisis? I definitely think that there are those that believe that the overarching uh, SVB and beyond crisis will result in the equivalent credit um, contraction of 25 to 50 basis points, meaning that if you think, you know, the Fed funds, the terminal rate should have been at five and three quarters, that at five and, and a quarter, you've done that equivalent amount. And the reason for that, Clay, I think is, is multifold. One is, if you now are aware as a as a mid-sized bank that deposits can move on you in a digital world with immediacy, and therefore you're vulnerable in terms of your deposit base fleeing out, either because there's a further crisis or just because we have a money market sucking sound out of the banking system. But second, if you're looking at that vulnerability and you're looking at some say 600 billion, there are different numbers, but very large numbers in terms of unrealized losses in treasury and MBS positions still in the bank system and the potential that you could be shocked to the point of having to sell and mark those assets. Third, there is a, a sense that the regulator is coming and, and the regulator whether it's stress testing, whether it's liquidity dynamics, that fundamentally there will be greater regulatory oversight on you that is not conducive to aggressive lending policy out of the banks. That creates this sense that, that it is the equivalent of 50 bips of tightening, particularly for employment, which is the stickiest part of inflation, and particularly for small and medium-sized businesses that are the most sensitive factor in employment across the country, that we will see and can see through this a fairly significant break on the economy. Okay, so that is, so that is uh, the way you just described it. It's a little mixed, which is that there's some volatility out there. The Fed is obviously trying to take care of inflation. And they're continuing to raise interest rates, but at some point they might need to pivot, not just pivot towards stopping, but pivot towards even loosening uh, monetary policy. What do you think of it from the global growth perspective? Because the United States, you know, whether or not the United States goes into recession, there was talk within looking at the global format, whether or not the global economy is kind of destined for a downgrade or was that not as much of a concern within the, the halls of the IMF and World Bank this week? 
No, I, I definitely think it is. I think the the idea of a soft or hard landing in the United States is directly extremely significant to the direction of the global economy. The harder the landing in the U.S., the more likely it is that this is a, a full-blown global downturn and that we see a 2024 that uh, everyone feels a certain amount of the U.S. pain. And there are a couple of factors in this. Is you know, One is in terms of the initial global reaction in the EM, the idea that the Fed is close to being done from a terminal rate perspective is dollar weakening. And therefore, it's also a, a, a fund flow dynamics that does not lead to further significant fund flows out of the EM the way you might expect if, in fact, you know the Fed had to move to five and three quarters. So from that perspective, there's a breather in at least the higher end of the EM that the dollar will stabilize and fund flows will stabilize. However, eventually, if, if in fact the market is right, that we will see data that shows that inflation is more under control and that the economy is slowing faster and that the Fed has to hit those brakes, the U.S. real economic recession would have implications for for the world. And that has turned people in the last few days to be digging deep into China. I think people have been disappointed that the China post-COVID kicker would be stronger than it's been. And there's been hope there. But also questions about the duration into 24 of China growth. And we've seen those that, like cities estimates, that still have very strong growth numbers out of China. But there have been a contrarian view that is saying, actually, the continued investment pace, if it's not coupled with strong Chinese consumer demand, if we don't end up, quite frankly, having a resolution in the real estate market, some of the noise in the tech market and the and and private growth innovation investment in, in China, which has slowed, that the Chinese can't grow at that rate for a longer period of time, and that the decoupling trend is causing investment to pull out of China into friend-shoring-related economies. And again, all of that potentially pointing to a China that just won't grow at the 5% plus handle number and, and might actually grow slower. And, and so there's a lot of debate by the China watchers on that, all again, trying to look at what that'll mean for global commodities markets and what that'll mean for global growth. Thank you. That was terrific. So at these meetings, one of the things that happens every now and then is there's conversations about the institutions themselves, the IMF and the World Bank being the two most important ones. Right now, I would say that probably the most of that conversation is about what is called MDB, which stands for Multilateral Development Banks, reform, particularly the World Bank. Now, the current president of the World Bank, David Malpass, will soon be stepping down. He is he has submitted his resignation, and President Biden has nominated uh, Ajay Banga, who is a former CEO of MasterCard, to be a uh, the next president. And right now, is everything I read was he, he'll definitely be the next president of the World Bank, and he will have an agenda which includes something called, as I mentioned, World Bank reform or MDB reform. I'll provide just one second of context, but then, Jay, I want to kind of get your thoughts on what you think of the whole thing, which is the World Bank provides financing to lower and middle income countries. 
to help them do certain things like build their healthcare systems, build their education systems, build their financial systems, what have you. But for development purposes, the issue that Secretary Yellen has put on the table is to try to actually squeeze a little bit more money out of the balance sheets so that they could also, the World Bank can pick up its pace on how much it does what is called financing for global public goods, which are global public goods or things like fighting a pandemic or global climate change. And this has proven to be controversial. They're trying to work through it. So I guess my question, Jay, is first, your, any thoughts you have on this agenda? And if you heard anything about progress being made, or maybe there wasn't much progress because there's the switch in leadership and people want to wait for that switch to actually happen. But anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So yes, I think MDB reform, multilateral development bank reform is, is I would say the number one issue on the agenda here and the most talked about issue. Um, by the way, Ajay Banga was before his MasterCard CEO position, a long-term executive at City, ran both consumer and ran Asia for us and partner of mine for years. Um, extraordinary. And he'll bring a perspective of both reform and the private sector that's much needed. Let me just for the listeners say, you have to go back to last year before David Mao passes announced departure and look at what was called the, the, the CAF or the G20 which was the capital adequacy framework discussion and report commissioned for the G20, reported to the G20. And essentially, it is, it's a technical report, but it is on the capital efficiency of the multilateral development banks as high-grade or, or investment-grade uh, AAA-rated institutions. The management of their capital and their efficiency has come under debate to see whether Given the extraordinary global public goods, climate, poverty, post-COVID needs of the developing world, whether their capital is sufficient and they need more capital, or whether they can be more efficient with the capital they have. And so this report, which has been the framing of all of the debate, on this has been how can we make their management of their capital more efficient to get essentially more with the same amount of funding that they currently have. And so that has framed the debate. Now, what a number of the private sector players here this week have tried to, to do, including City, has said, if we simply lend more the old-fashioned way, the way we've done since the origins of the Bretton Woods institutions, um, that that's not actually, certainly from my personal view, to be defined as successful reform. And by that, what we have said, uh, and GISD, the Global Investors for Sustainable Development group that the, the UN Secretary General formed, has said in their report and others, is that we actually need to mobilize the private sector and that the toolkit, the products and tools that the multilateral development banks use, shouldn't just be about lending senior and peri passu with the private sector, but should mitigate risk such that we crowd the private sector in. For example, Kristalina, the head of the IMF, has called for mobilization rates 
of four to five times what the MDBs lend. So why would the MDBs help the private sector to invest in the emerging markets? Well, one is just because the days where the public sector was the bulk of capital moving to the emerging markets to meet their developmental needs are gone. And without the funds from the private sector, you simply can't get there, whether it's poverty, whether it's energy transition and the climate agenda. The money's not there without the private sector. Second, and very importantly, is post-financial crisis, the regulatory framework, both Basel III and Solvency II, construct put on the banks and the insurance community is so stringent that the banks are restricted in terms of their risk appetite and their ability from a regulatory perspective to take uh, risk in the weaker credit, meaning single B, double B zip code of the emerging markets. And so if you think of the GFANs, the, the, the global investors, pensions, banks, and insurance companies that are committed to net zero, $130 to $160 trillion worth of money that theoretically could invest in the emerging markets, unless their risk is mitigated, most of that money, and I would say that's, you know, let's call it 90 plus percent, is going to stay in investment grade space. And so if there aren't new tools by the MDBs to mitigate risk and to facilitate capital moving to the weaker credit countries, all this private sector money won't move. So this week, I think, is the beginning of what will definitely be a journey through to the annual meetings later this year of discussions about what is appropriate? What are the capital costs of, for the MDBs of mitigating more private sector risk? And how can the private sector and public sector partner on things like poverty and climate change such that we get that model right? That's very good. And also, actually, you sounded a little bit optimistic. So that was actually very nice. I am a constructive optimist. I think that as Kristalina has said recently, is you know when we have views on how and why the system isn't working and views on how to fix them, we should be screaming them from the rafters. And so I'm trying to do that. And I think that a lot of what we're talking about requires breaking glass. If we, if we just sit back and, and do things the old-fashioned way, looking through the rearview mirror, none of what I'm talking about will actually happen. And that's going to be a problem for the, the emerging markets. I've never in 35 years seen the frustration in the emerging markets that I have over the course of the past year. Okay, that's an, that's an interesting transition into what has also been a frustrating aspect for emerging market countries, but also for others in the system. And that's the talk about something called debt relief. Again, let me just provide a couple points of context. So in late 2020 and 2021, the official sector came up with a concept which they called the common framework. The idea of the common framework was for countries that were in debt distress, that they would have a system where they could work out their distress because there is no global bankruptcy system. So uh, they're distressed with particularly with official creditors. So the common framework was to bring together Paris Club creditors, 
which includes the United States and France and Japan and Germany, Canada, and and a bunch of other countries, together with non-Paris Club countries, which have become much, much more important in the international financial system, such as China and India and Turkey. And so the common framework was to try to help provide a system for providing debt workouts. And the private sector was supposed to be kind of a participant uh, at some point because private sector can be also a lender to a number of these institutions. Over the last two years, it really hasn't worked. Now, that doesn't mean the common framework couldn't work. It just means that right now it hasn't been working. It's been very slow. The countries that have gone through it have not been able to come out. So what the IMF did over the last few months was try to bring together all the different creditors. So multilateral creditors, official bilateral creditors, private sector creditors, which includes both banks that provide cross-border loans and asset managers who buy bonds that countries issue. Banks buy bonds as well. But maybe just as importantly, also to bring together sovereign borrowers. So over the last few days, the IMF held a meeting which the IIF participated in, but it was to try to come up with a new framework to try to improve the common framework and also to bring these different players into the system. All right, so that was a long windup. Jay, you've heard kind of some of the results of that discussion. Do you see this making some progress so that these debt workout situations are not as slow, protracted, and frankly, using kind of the words you were using earlier, frustrating as they've seemed to have been over the last couple of years. So here I am deeply concerned. And I think I am concerned because I have restructured, reprofiled the debt of many, many countries over the past 30 years. And I think that we have a construct now that has handcuffed so many parts of the system together into a construct that is stuck. At the end of the day, many of the countries that are either in the common framework or are looking at their debt situation as unsustainable and are worried that they may have to go into the room of the common framework are stuck. And and to be clear, um, we've always had a construct where the Paris Club primarily developed wealthy countries that lend bilaterally to the emerging markets. So that's called the Paris Club. The private sector creditors that buy bonds that then in the event where you have a debt sustainability problem, those debtors struggle to pay their debt and there is a renegotiation of that. So the the institutional investors in their paper, let's call them the the private sector creditors, the IMF and the MDBs get together and look at what they, you know, what they can do for this situation. And first and foremost, there's generally an IMF programmatic construct on that, which generally not just means that the IMF will come up with a debt sustainability analysis that defines what has to happen in terms of debt relief, but the MDBs will then and into that fund program. And most importantly, is is the preferred creditor status of the MDBs will be protected generally in that process such that the multilateral development banks do not take a haircut. They do not participate 
in any debt restructuring. The two parties that participate are Paris and and the private sector uh, creditors, um, and and generally Perry Passu. So what's changed? Well, one is as you rightfully said, it's now Paris Club Plus. The Chinese and others are in that room, and the Chinese have had a view that says that we, China, now as the largest single uh, sovereign creditor to the emerging markets, would like to see the multilateral development banks participate in this process. And by participation, um, I mean specifically share that pain. And there's been resistance by the G7 and the multilateral development banks that want to protect the preferred creditor status of the MDBs are unwilling to participate. And generally, the financial community endorses that view, that it is critical to protect that preferred creditor status. However, in the Paris Club Plus room, as those official creditors disagree, the EM countries that are now wed to this common framework process uh, are stuck, and they're stuck waiting. And they don't know necessarily, that room is not transparent, it's an official negotiation, and they don't have a way out. What I have said is, is it seems reasonable to me that it's unfair for the official community to allow, to create a common framework where a, a poor EM country loses access not just to the capital markets, but to all capital formation, bond, and bank during a period as it goes into the common framework process. And it doesn't know how to get out, and it doesn't know how long it's in that process. That just doesn't seem in an age of just transition or or justness that this process can be just. And so I certainly believe we have to fix this process. I've seen just extraordinary efforts from Kristalina and the IMF and the GSDR negotiations that you're talking about to move things forward so that we fix the process. But actually this week, I haven't come away feeling like the the geopolitical gridlock at the official level has been broken. And I haven't felt like things are moving fast enough. And so as I meet with ministers that are either looking in and saying, I may have to go into that common framework room if this high rate environment continues and I have no capital access, or the ones that have been in it and been in it for a very long time and are still stuck in it and they want something to move, they're frustrated. And rightfully so. Um, I understand their frustration. And I think we need to be bolder and we need to, again, break some glass so that we come up with some alternatives to the common framework, or at least agree that we have to have a plan B if you can't get agreement between the Paris Club plus players. So that's a very good point. This week, the IMF did host these different actors there did seem to be agreement that communication and information flow, particularly on data and assumptions, needs to improve pretty significantly. Second, I think that there did seem to be agreement that we need to desperately improve the timeliness on that. I will say on that, nobody has come up yet with the right mechanism that, can get, that has full agreement 
but I think that everyone recognizes that there needs to be a serious discussion. The third area is, in some respects, it was a kick the can down the road to try to deal with the issue you raised called the comparability of treatment, which becomes highly technical, highly fast. And there are a number of other issues around that that are, again, quite technical. And it was probably the right decision to kick that can down the road so that you could get the right actors in the room. And they are saying that they are going to do that in May to have a technical conversation. So all of that is slightly positive. It's probably not overly positive to try to make some progress. And all of this at the same time is, I think, one of the key points you made in your answer to my last question, which was having market access. A lot of these countries, they realize they're in trouble. They need to work out their debts. They know they're going to lose market access for a little while, but they don't want to lose market access forever. And being stuck in this system puts them in a position where they do lose that access. Or if the workout is so contentious, it puts them in a situation where they might also lose market access for a while because of the contentiousness or there's litigation or what have you. So these are tough issues, but I'm glad they made a little progress this week. But as I think you warned earlier, there's a lot more to be done here. I guess I am not giving the official and private sector participants involved in this process uh, quite such an, an you know, an easy pass card because we've known that this process was broken for a long time. And the conversations over the course of the last, I would say, nine months, where it was pretty clear that there was gridlock in the Paris Club Plus room, that a number of the participants, Chad, Ethiopia, others, have been unable to understand the process and, and what it takes to move it forward. But then countries like Ghana that, yeah, let's take Ghana, for example. I mean, there's no clarity when Ghana will come out of this process. And uh, if you have a staff level agreement, and that means that the experts and the technical level of the fund have reached agreement on a program, and they are preparing to take it to the board, but they can't take it to the board without the agreement of the Paris Club Plus participants. And therefore, they literally just have to sit and wait until that happens. You know, I think it's a problem that we kick the can down the road. And, and actually, Clay, for those of your listeners that aren't necessarily experts in this space, there are many technical issues and, and, and flaws and disagreements that can be resolved by experts that just really require them to sit in the room and agree on some of the specificity here, including net present value calculations and a number of technical features that we don't need to wait. You don't need to kick the can down the road. You need to put people in the room and say, you know, the poor people of Ghana can't feed themselves and they have no control over anything until we reach some of those agreements. So you can't wait. And so I'm in favor of IIF through its extraordinary convening power and its voice of raising that voice, um, taking a, you know, a, a message from Kristalina 
and screaming from the rafters that this is unacceptable and that we just need to push the system faster and not take this small incremental progress as enough. Well, thank you very much, Jay. That actually is a good place for us to stop because your energy is contagious. And I definitely got the lighting the fire under my you-know-what, and as well as IIF, but not just IIF, the official sector as well. So I appreciate that. And then let me just say thank you very much for joining us and doing this. I know you've had a very, very busy week. You still have probably more work to do be done, even though it's late on Friday. So I just want to say thanks, Jay, for joining. No, thank you. And I want to thank IIF. You know, the, the process that you put together on these issues, um, I have been on the principles committee for years and years, as long as I can remember, and uh, sustainability, the transparency initiative. I think that the, the great work that you're doing and continue to do is vital to the, to the financial system. Uh, and so I just want to thank you as well, Clay. All right. Well, thanks, Jay Collins, and we'll see you soon. Thanks again. Thank you. Take care. So now it's time for the three, two, one. That's my three takeaways from my conversation with Jay. Two things I'll be looking forward to going forward and my one sports fact. Three things. First, we have experienced some financial volatility, and this has harmed the prospects for economic growth here in the United States as well as abroad. I think Jay basically provided a picture that suggested things are mixed and you could see the economy decelerating, but hopefully stabilization will occur and we will not have too bad of a problem on the economics. Second, from an institutional perspective, World Bank and multilateral development bank reform will continue to be a major issue for the global community. As Jay mentioned, he's actually fairly optimistic that they can get this done, and that includes trying to make sure that institutions can provide more financing and, maybe more importantly, leverage up more private capital to address some of the key global problems that exist, such as climate change and pandemics. And third, when it comes to global debt restructuring, Jay was actually somewhat pessimistic that we're not making progress at a fast enough pace and countries that have gotten themselves into trouble for whatever reason, we're not finding ways to get them out of trouble and move on with their lives and not just be caught in a trap. And right now, he was a little bit pessimistic and pushing me to do even more. The two things that I'm looking forward to, one will be the May 1st report that's coming out from the Federal Reserve and the FDIC on the volatility that occurred in the financial system. Are there easy solutions or are things really complicated and it'll be hard to figure out? Either way, it should start telling us more about how much more volatility we'll have. And next is the point that Jay was making at the end. There may be technical conversations going on on doing debt workouts, but we need to speed that process up get technicians in the room, and get people to sign off on ideas. There is no silver bullet, but that doesn't mean we can't make progress at a faster clip. And now my one sports fact of the week. March is known for March Madness. 
which is basically the NCAA basketball championships. So we talk about the final four in college basketball, both the men's and the women's. But this week, I want to talk about a different NCAA championship, which is the Frozen Four. Now, the Frozen Four is named that as a little bit to be funny compared to the final four because it's about ice hockey. And this is the NCAA championships for ice hockey. In the Frozen Four, we had three of the behemoths of college hockey. University of Michigan, which has won the most NCAA championships ever, nine of them. And they've been in the Frozen Four 27 times. The University of Minnesota, which has won it five times. And they have been in the Frozen Four 23 times. And Boston University, which has also won it five times. And they've also been in it 23 times. And then a university in Connecticut that is better known for its polling of political issues than its hockey or any other sport, which is Quinnipiac, known as the Bobcats. And as you probably guessed, they won it. They beat Minnesota in the finals in overtime after beating Michigan in the semifinals. It is the first title that Quinnipiac has won in any NCAA championship. And obviously, it's their first hockey title. Quinnipiac was down 2-1 to one with three minutes to play in the game. They did something that's very risky in hockey. They pulled their goalie. That means basically, you pull your goalie, you put on a different player to try to see if you can score. And they did. And they scored with two and a half minutes left, put it into overtime. And in overtime, which is probably the fastest overtime in the history of a, a college championship, they beat Minnesota in 10 seconds. It took 10 seconds for them to score, and the first score wins. That's how the overtime process works in NCAA hockey. Anyway, I thought it was a great story. So here's to the Bobcats of Quinnipiac. That's going to wrap up this episode of Current Account. I again want to thank Jay Collins from Citibank for his insights. And as always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listener. We can be reached at podcast at IIF.com. And all of our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.